Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, where each week we dive into topics exploring mind, body, and soil. It is always such a pleasure to be here with you, and today I'm coming from you, I'm coming to you, I'm coming to you from the first snowy day of the season, and this is a really important moment to me because I feel like the beginning of winter is the beginning of the journey inward to nourishing body and spirit after a heavy season of farming and of working. It's this time of turning inward, and I I just really appreciate that time. And I think that this podcast is a a perfect one for this because so much of today's guest's work is about nourishment. My guest today is Dr. Susie Hazen, and this podcast has been a long time coming. I have been following Susie and her beautiful work and words on Instagram for some time, and it was such a pleasure to sit down and really talk to her in person. Well, in Zoom. Same thing. Susie created Mother's Best Liver Pills, and this is going to sound like an advertisement, but it's not. I don't benefit from this. I only benefit in seeing you become the most nourished self that you can be, and I think that's of benefit to all of us. Susie created Mother's Best Liver Pills, which you'll hear a lot about on this podcast, but this is something that I actually decided to start taking in the spring of this year. And I did a lot of research to find the liver pills that I thought would would really be of best benefit to me, to the animals, to the planet. And Susie's were hands down what I wanted. And I'm so glad I got to play with this. As somebody who eats a lot of liver, it was really fun to see how just pushing it a little bit further really helped with my own energy and my own feeling of well-being. And these are something that I lean on pretty heavily too when I travel or when I don't have as much time to cook or things like that. And I, I just can't say enough good things. I recommend them to all my friends. If you checked out last week's episode with Lily Nichols, I think that these are an incredible addition to your diet if you're pregnant or if you're nursing, or if you're trying to conceive, or if you're just a human being. I just think these liver pills are fantastic and Susie with them. And they always come with just the most uplifting notes and little treats. And so can't recommend enough getting a subscription. And Susie is really about nourishment, about nourishing souls, about nourishing bodies, about nourishing the journey of motherhood and the journey of marriage. And we really dive into all of that and more on this podcast podcast episode. And it was, she's just a radiant and beautiful human being. And so I know that you are going to love this one as much as I did. If you're listening to this podcast right around release, we are going to be doing a little giveaway on Instagram so that you can get some of your own mother's best liver pills. And so I encourage you to head on over to the gram to check that out. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the incredible guests like Susie. And I'm just so excited for you to dive into this episode. As promised, we're going to be diving into some advertisements here on the Groundwork Podcast. We're going to ease in, and I really want to enter this new phase of the podcast with the intention of reciprocity. So the reciprocity is that I'm going to bring you very amazing brands that I have been using for many years that are transparent and spectacular in their practices. And in return, if it feels like something that might add joy to your life or might add health to your life, if you purchase through that link, it helps support this podcast and helps me get all of these incredible voices out into the world. And so by partnering and and embarking on this reciprocity, all you have to do is just click the link if it seems like something you want. If not, skip the ad or listen for the educational content and we are all good. This week, I am bringing you one of my favorite brands, Home of Wool. Home of Wool is an incredible destination for getting all of your bedding, mattress, children's bedding, rugs, all of those needs met with an incredible natural fabric that has a lot of power. And one of the first places that Josh and I decided to clean up, as it were, was our bedroom. We spend around one third of our life in sleep and sleep is a space where we are literally cleaning our brains and bringing vitality to our bodies for the next day. It is also an experience that I want to be luxurious and Home of Wool delivers on that. We use their pillows. I have a custom length body pillow from Home of Wool as well as their duvet. And one thing that I think is particularly incredible about surrounding yourself with wool while you sleep is that studies have shown that it actually lowers your heart rate and increases the time that you spend in REM sleep. How incredible is that? I think part of that is this is a material that we've evolved sleeping around with animal skins and hides. And so it really helps to regulate our sleep and our parasympathetic nervous system. So I highly recommend Home of Wool and diving into some of their incredible bedding materials. And this week through November 30th, they're offering a special 20% discount on all items using the code BLACKSHEEP20. That's BLACKSHEEP, B-L-A-C-K-S-H-E-E-P-2-0 when you go to homeofwool.com. If you're catching this episode a little bit later in the game, you can use code Kate Cavanaugh at Home of Wool to get a 10% discount. Again, we love these items. They've helped us feel hugged, loved, and well-rested in the morning. And so I highly recommend digging into all of their beautiful wares at homeofwool.com using the code BLACKSHEEP20. Let me know what you think. It's so beautiful. And it took, we ran the butcher shop for five years. I mean, just in tandem day in and day out until I ran myself into the ground. Yeah. Josh still had more to give and he has such a different set of 
skills and people management and extroversion, like you Mm -hmm. said. And it's just such a, such a beautiful thing to kind of begin to divide and conquer, which we do a little bit with the podcast too. Yeah. Yeah. I am, you know, it's, I think it's kind of a funny thing because I think a lot of us, I'm not so sure about guys, but a lot of us women that kind of put ourselves out there on the internet, we're actually really intense introverts. And I think that goes for a lot of um, just basically performers, musicians as well. And it's something that I've kind of like struggled with my whole life because, you know, as you know, like going to public school, working a full-time job, I mean, that's just really hard for introverts, man. It just, you just get so drained by feeling everyone's feelings all day long. It's, it's a lot. So it's really cool to just kind of take a step back and say, okay, I can kind of do a lot from my realm here, but I don't have to be out there like just dealing with members of the public all day, every day. And some people can do that. And it's like such a, I'm like, wow, like go on. Amazing. Great. (laughs) Enjoy yourself. I'll be home. I'll be on the farm. What do you think it is about the internet? I I experienced this as somebody who's deeply, deeply introverted. And I think there's a funny thing that happens when people meet me in real life that it doesn't always line up with my internet or podcast persona because this is, you know, I'm in my little bubble and my little realm and I feel safe and held here to then go out and put myself out on that space. But I feel like some of some of my favorite people on the internet are deeply, deeply introverted. You know, I, okay. This is my thought is that introverts have, because we have such a, um, I I would say we're empaths. So we have this very intense inner world and we actually develop in my opinion, probably more of an understanding of psychology or just some of the like real underpinnings of like the human experience And for us to share it through the internet is like such a win. It's just a total win because, you know, here we are and we're connecting, but yet we're not out there dealing with all sorts of randos. And that's really valid. And I think there's, I know that there's actually a lot of um, very high level public performers as well who are um, introverts. And that's why they kind of like cloister themselves when they're not on stage. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny. Cause also like when I'm out in public, I'm actually very social. I'm very engaging. I talk to strangers all the time. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I do too. Like, yeah, I'm like that. Yeah. And then after about 20 minutes, I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> um, yeah. and I, I've actually been trying, you know, as I get just more mature and know myself better, I'm trying to like, okay, just, just quietly hang. Like you don't need to connect deeply with the supermarket checkout woman today. This is the one, this is the thing. This is what I do. It's the supermarket checkout person, whoever that is. And I love to just make sure that they feel seen in their day and to make this connection as somebody who's worked those jobs before. It's just nice to not be a seen as a a robot. And that they make these deep connections with the gas station attendant or the supermarket checkout person. And but yeah. it's okay. It's okay to, it's okay to keep it in. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's okay to give less. It's yeah. okay to give less and just, I don't know, just use our energy wisely rather than like disperse it. 
you know, and I, I'm actually kind of excited for this new generation of teens and young women because I feel like this is like a discourse that's actually on the table now. And it definitely wasn't. I mean, I'm, I think I'm about 10 years older than you. Are you 30 ish? I'm 33. Um, Okay, you're 33. So I'm 42. So in the 90s, like self-care or like taking care of your needs or like being mindful with your energy, like that wasn't, nobody heard of that, Mm -hmm. you know, and now I'll actually hear it. Like, I think, I feel like I had a a babysitter and she was like, yeah, I just, you know, I was just starting my period. So I needed an extra self-care day. So I stayed home from school today and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So this is becoming more, it's just becoming a discussion. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. There was no discussion of what it meant to even just be an introvert when I was a kid. And I, I was lost in a, in a sea of how to navigate social situations I, as a young kid and as a teenager. And it led me down some strange paths too, of, of trying to find exogenous substances that helped me feel more social and helped me feel like I could be in spaces that were just bombarding me with energy that I felt like I couldn't handle. It's tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I definitely went through that. I also think that as introverts kind of trying to live a normal-ish life, my suspicion is that we might consume a lot more minerals than extroverts in, in doing so. Because, you know, if you're socializing and interacting and you're finding that low-level stressful or even high-level stressful your body is just gobbling through, you know, copper, magnesium, all that. And so I think that's, um, I know that's a thing. Do you think some of this led you into liver? I feel like I have this sort of karmic relationship with meat that who I am, that my energy in the world was attracted to meat as a, a point of bodily wisdom, that that's what I needed. Oh yeah, definitely. I was actually a uh, liver contacted me from the spirit realm. It was like a, it was a, like, it was like the voice of God in my head, just like whispering in my ear, you need liver. You need liver. And it was, this went on for um, probably a couple months before I acted on it, but it was very much, I mean, I was, I never have done any sort of hair tissue mineral analysis, but I was so drained of copper. I know I was. And I just got this like divine transmission. And that's how I started consuming liver and then making the liver pills that my business makes now. And I still to this day have been trying to learn to like the taste of liver as it is. And I'm making little inroads, but I've been doing this for like 11 years now. And I'm still, you know, it's just, yeah, just, it is what it is. I, as a butcher, am the biggest proponent of getting your organ meats wherever makes sense for you. I think that we yeah. take this, this stance sometimes where, oh, you just grow up and eat it. And it's like, no, I think you find a space where it gives you joy. I... I eat this little, I call it, I call it kind of a meat porridge every morning. Oh, and it I has, love your meat porridge. And it has so all these cool. chopped up organ meats and they're just kind yeah. of hidden in there. And that's, yeah. that's okay. 
You know what? I have seen you share about that online. And I think it's like one of the best things you do because you even batch cook it and have it prepped and ready to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, like, I just cooked 12 pounds, um, on Saturday and then any meal I need that it's right there, but we're big, we're big batch cookers, but this has also been, I've been in a season of making sure that I, we talked about this a little bit before we hit record that I stay nourished and I've added your liver pills in for the last, I think since May. And I think they're just such a beautiful addition. And I, I'm just, every time they come in the mail, I have them behind me. They're, they're <laughs> I know I saw them on your shelf. There. <laughs> um, I just think they're such a beautiful addition and I had recommended them for years, but I had never tried them myself. And it was such a fun way to connect with you too. Like I just feel this love and care that goes into them, even when each package arrives and there's, there's star stickers. And sometimes there's a little gift, like a smudge stick and, and just sparkly goodness. And it just, it feels that way. It feels deeply nourishing. And I'm just really impressed with, I'm really impressed with them. Well, I really appreciate you saying that because we are like, this is just so genuinely a small woman. Oh, well, I don't even want to say woman. Well, it's not, I guess, because my husband is involved too, but this is just a small scale family business here. This is a hundred percent made by hand. This is not a white label product and it's definitely different than the other liver pills that are out there. And I'm, oh my goodness, my the kids are like knocking on the windows right now. Lover, I'm, I am doing a podcast right now. So I am, it's okay. And we are going to have your rock cut at 10. So we've got two hours. Okay. Um, my son got a geode and I'm taking it to my friend who does uh rock cutting to have it like cut in half. So we're just like, we smashed. That, um, was, that was my favorite thing. I, I forgot about that as a kid. My favorite thing was taking a hammer to geodes. My parents oh, used to totally. do those all the time. It's such an incredible thing. I love that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know he's really into rocks. I'm like, okay, well let's follow your dreams. Yeah let's dig into rocks. They're yeah. pretty cool thing. That's where all of these uh, great minerals come from that are, are ending up inside of the liver. So yeah. yeah. So, well, okay. Let's talk about what the liver is. Yeah. Right? I want is... to unpack this with you. Yeah. So I am, um, I mean, I couldn't, like, I literally couldn't tell you how many times I've had this conversation via DM or email with someone who's, you know, curious about it. But they're like, well, isn't the liver like a toxic storage dump for, or like garbage dump for waste materials or like, you know, it's always like toxins, 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 toxins. And I'm like, well, you know, if the animal has been fed with pharmaceuticals, yes, it could be. And, you know, our whole modern concept of the, the body, it's, it's totally driven by the pharmaceutical industry and every single drug is hepatotoxic, every single one. There's no drug that's not toxic to your liver and kidneys. That's why elders who are on a cocktail of meds, as many elders are, are constantly having those liver function tests because basically the doctors are like, okay, are we killing you yet? Like, can you keep, how much longer can you keep going? And impressively, you know, a lot of people can keep going for a very long time. Although I think that's kind of changing in our generation because we do have to remember, say an elder now who's in their eighties, they were raised on, for the most part, an organic whole foods diet. And often even with a lot of traditional cooking methods and 
a much more gentle, um, a gentle as well as more active lifestyle as a child. Yes. So they grew up in a totally different biome than those of us that grew up in the eighties and nineties, early two thousands with a lot of processed food, a lot of, um, screen time and just a lot of things that were not accruing minerals and were also dispersing minerals. I would say also too, and I love this, I hadn't thought about that with sort of the elders, there was less of a burden on their liver, less of a toxic environment, less of the cleaning products and the junk food and just the assault on our systems that we have today, less of a burden on that, that organ. Yes. You know, I just, I really love elders and my husband and I have a lot of friends who are actually in their seventies and eighties. You know, yeah, just like you, we live in a small town and we're friends with who lives close to us. And we are super into that. And just hearing about their childhoods and like this what they used to do. And it's like really, it, I mean, it just warms your heart. And then also, you know, there's sad stuff too. Like there wasn't, you know, a lot of abuse went on. Um, there was no, no support for that kind of stuff. Although, is there even good support for it now? I would, I would probably say there isn't, unfortunately. Yeah. So, well, okay. Why don't we get back to what the liver does? So I think you already know, and maybe your listeners know that I am a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine. So I actually have a master's degree. I traveled to China. I did like a very involved five-year full-time education program in this and mentored with a couple of amazing doctors. And so Chinese medicine is very much a system of indigenous medicine. And there's tons of parallels with the Chinese medicine view of the human body with all different forms of indigenous medical traditions, including Tibetan, Native American, which obviously that's a very diverse group of lifeways. And it really annoys me when people are like Native American, this and that. I'm like, well, you know, there's thousands of things that that means. So in all of them, they, the liver is considered what, what we call the storehouse of precious substances. Mm. So storehouse of precious substances. So almost like a treasury. Like if you imagine, it's kind of like your bank account. And we can even understand this in Western medicine physiology, because in Western medicine physiology, we know that at night, 55% of your blood is in your liver at any given time, basically being recalibrated. Whoa, I did not know that. That is wild. Isn't that cool? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're sleeping, basically over half of your blood is actually in your liver, just being like, um, just being, I don't even want to say cleansed, but restored. It's having like minerals parceled out into it. It's also having minerals removed from it and stored in the liver tissue itself. And then it's basically giving your blood all of the hormone precursors that it needs. So you can have an actual, you know, good day. So it's another reason why sleep is so important. And I mean, as we both know, maybe you experience this setting up your business when you're running a business at a cost to your sleep. It's just the clock is ticking for you. Yes. Yes. I think anything that is compromising sleep is reducing your vitality and the way that you are able to operate in the world. Very much so. And it's not, it's not gonna, you know, even if you're on this sort of adrenaline high for a few years, it's, it's not going to last. 
unfortunately, wouldn't that be nice? So the liver is basically this like beautiful storehouse of precious substances. And this is why in all, all forms of traditional life ways, liver was this prized food. It would be shared. It would be given to the children, the elders, pregnant women, you know, and then to have to go from that to our culture being like, it's a toxic waste disposal system. It's like, wow, that is, let's just leave this chapter behind and let's just go forward into actually acknowledging the liver for what it is. And it's almost like laughable to me that people could go their whole lives without eating liver. I'm just like, what are you even doing? Like, how are you even standing there to be honest? And and I will say people are, you know, they've got storages and their own liver from their ancestors and people also just, they live with a lot of discomfort and, and people are just tough. It's kind of amazing what they live with. We've normal, I think we've normalized discomfort as, and physiological issues, you know, everything from bloating to painful periods and all of these headaches, whatever these things are as just a fact of life when really there is so much vitality that's to be had beyond that. And I think you, you bring up something really important here, which is we are living on borrowed nutrients from our ancestors, but over time that is going to start to decline precipitously as we don't rejuvenate and replenish these nutrients by eating these foods that that have been a part of our diet for time immemorial the most important part of our diet yeah, the, the first of our thing diet. the first thing selected out of a kill yes. for tens of thousands of years yes and there's actually when you um harvest animals yourself like literally as you're harvesting them, you know, you kill the animal, cut the throat, string it up, cut the belly. I mean, you know, the intestines fall out and maybe if you've got dogs or, or you're putting them, you know, into storage, whatever, you know, whatever you need to do with your intestines, I'm game for that. But then, right. Then the liver falls out. It's right there. The liver's just there. It's the first thing. Yeah. It's just, and you know, interestingly, there's, it doesn't store well. You can't, you know, if you're living without refrigeration and freezing, you cannot store liver. You can easily store muscle meat by salting it and smoking it, but liver needs to be eaten fresh. So that's what people did. And it's enticing too. I, I mean, I just spent the whole weekend processing ducks and geese and chickens. And so I've looked at a lot. I've had my hands on a lot of livers this weekend. <laughs> yeah. But there's something really beautiful. I mean, and beef liver, especially I could, I could wax poetic about pulling out this huge amorphous smooth, shiny, almost sexy. Like you want to touch it velvety. Yeah. Yes. And it calls to you. It does. You feel a, um, like a spiritual resonance with it. And the liver is also, um, considered to be the home to our earthly soul in Chinese medicine. We have five different souls. And so the liver is almost the residence of that part of you spiritually that's embodied while you are alive. So it doesn't surprise me that everyone just makes such a fuss over it when you're harvesting. It's, you know, we, we like to think that we have to learn all these things from books or from education or whatever, but you also like, they just like humans have instincts that come alive again when we're doing the things that humans do. And we don't, 
necessarily need to be educated to understand the value of the liver when we've got our hands on it. Yes. Home of the earthly soul. I wrote this from another interview that you had done and, and I, I want to touch on it because I think that it's really easy to reduce some of these organs and some of these things into these textbook physiological functions. And there's something about teasing out the energy of these things too, and what they mean. Yeah. 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 I, you know, it's kind of funny because everyone is really reacting against forms of spirituality that may or may not have been very supportive of us over the past several thousand years. And I get that, but we've also kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And, you know, a lot of people can't even say God, like, you know, they're like, God, it's like, you know, they've, we've, you know, we have to, you know, when you take this kind of atheistic approach, like we, I don't know, it's just really hard to understand humans and what we do if you're not seeing us as a spiritual being in an earthly form. And definitely once you start, you know, getting into that process of harvesting animals regularly and taking responsibility for that, like, you know, what happens when the soul leaves an animal's body, it's a process. It actually takes a fairly much longer than I would have thought, which is one reason that it really pisses me off how in Hollywood movies, people get shot and they just fall down and die. I'm like, no, they, they don't just fall down and die. If someone gets shot and it's a deadly shot, they fall down and then their body is going to start like shaking and convulsing. And this could go on for a few minutes. Yes. Now I get that they're not going to show that in movies, but you know, that's the time it takes for this. Like, you know, you can almost see like a steam rising or a, an energy floating out of the, um, you know, of the carcass of this animal that yes. you loved. It's so real. It is so real and felt felt deeply. Uh, Tara Kutcher, when she was on, called it an expansion. And I love that. I think of it as a, a transformation, but it is felt and you can watch it unfold. And, and it, it brings you back to God, right? And, and that life is just this transformation continuously of one thing into another thing. And our souls being a part of that, that I don't even understand. I was, I was one of those people that felt allergic to the word God for a long time. So I understand that. Yeah, me too. You know, and there's a, I mean, everyone is on their own ride and I just completely get that. And none of us know what's going to be the next step for another person. I mean, we don't even know what's the next step for ourselves, to be honest. No, But yeah, Tara is so spot on about that. And it's something that, you know, it's a really blessed part of being a farmer and someone that deals in death is just, you know, like, I know that that's going to happen to me too when I die. That doesn't mean I'm not scared because I I am scared. I am scared of of dying and I don't want to pretend that I'm not, but I also have like an inner confidence that it's going to be okay. I know how to do this. Grandma did it. I can do it. I love that. I think it's the most natural thing in the world to have a fraught relationship with death too, because I think that what propels us forward as a species is our fear of death. Absolutely. We need that. That's serving a really beautiful purpose in our life as a reminder of when we're doing something that might not be the the smartest thing or when we're in a really life-threatening situation, 
all of a sudden online comes that fear of death. And of course, it's going to also be present at the backs of our minds. And I think that like our, the wild progenitor humans that came before us, and this is something I want to get into eventually in this conversation, when we're not connected to it and witnessing it as hunter or as farmer, I think that it becomes something more fraught with fear than it needs to be because we get this really beautiful chance to witness what you just described. Absolutely. Yeah. What we avoid becomes, you know, just like an absolute monster. Whereas if you are scared of something and you start to engage with it, you realize like, oh yeah, this is probably not as bad as I thought. I mean, avoidance is just like, we know how sticky and how messy that gets. And the you know, kind of the way we're all living in this system where we kind of have these hospitals, which have now become these high security places with security guards and passports that you have to show to get in and out. And I mean, that is not, I I'm hopeful that we're going to be, I mean, we're women are birthing at home. Women are raising their children at home and I'm hopeful we're going to be dying at home again. Yes. Yes. I love that. I think that's that's my plan. Mine too. I hope too that in that there will be more going back to the earth outside of boxes meant to keep us from the minerals that we dissolve back into. Yes. You know, bury me in a shroud and just let me go back to the soil where I came from that I am made up of. Yeah, I think that's really important to come back to dying at home. I actually hadn't considered that. Thank you for, thank you for that. Oh, I, you know, what's one of my favorite, um, like weird random hobbies is sky burial. Do you know what that is? I don't please. Okay. It's so cool. So, you know, there's just so many cool ways that let's just call them natural people have lived in harmony with their environment. So sky burial is a tradition from Tibet and you know, where they live, the topsoil is very thin. Obviously their farming is for the most part terraced. So they don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of place just to like bury tons of corpses. Right. So they have a very cool tradition where when a person dies after all the grieving and the wake and all that, the person will be transported up to certain very high mountainous peaks and the body is then exposed. And actually the body is flayed and opened for the vultures. And the body is left there and the birds come and, you know, devour the flesh. And then um, after a certain time period, I don't know if it's a year or maybe less, they come back and gather up the bones and then the uh, bones are interred or buried in some fashion. But I just thought like, how fucking awesome is that? Like, it's so cool to me. I'm just like, that's so beautiful. And I don't know what a way to give back and live in harmony with your environment. It's just, just beautiful to me. Yes. Let me, let me go be a part of a vulture for a minute before that vulture dies and becomes a part of something else. And that iterative process just happens ad nauseum. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I love that that also, it connects you back there then death workers. I mean, somebody has to carry that body up the mountain and consider the weight of that life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a very much like, um, it's not something that just everybody does. I'm sure there's certain cleansing rituals and um, procedures that need to be done to deal with the 
entities or spirits or whatever that might be associated with that process. And it's definitely a very specialized field within their culture. And um, yeah, I just think we need to, I don't know. I'm just, I feel like there's all these like natural human instincts that are kind of getting reawakened right now. And I don't have any idea how this is all going to unfold, but I'm, I'm excited for humanity right now because we've just been sort of on this very corporate blah sort of trajectory. And at least those of us in the Western world, because we have to remember, I mean, there's a huge population of people that never went this way. They never, they've never had the opportunity to industrialize. So um, I don't know, this is going to be interesting for our population. I agree. And I think that there is this sort of awakening that's occurring where we all want to get back to a space that does feel rooted in us, that it's known just like pulling out that liver is this process of, oh, my body needs that. And we don't need to know all of the inner workings of the liver. We don't have to understand its physiology. We can just understand our desire for it and that natural predilection of the human to cut open a carcass and reach for that first. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that has been like, I know with the Plains Indians buffalo harvest, that was a real thing where there would be such a mass of animals that were being harvested. The liver, the heart, and the tongue would be consumed and the muscle meat was, you know, left behind for the scavengers. Um, and also a lot of predators do that as well. A lot of um, like mountain lions will, you know, make a kill and then they go for the liver and the heart and then they're out of there. You know? Yes. We see that a lot. We have an issues with aerial predators here on the farm and we'll see that with bald eagles taking down a chicken and they'll eat the heart, the liver, maybe pick it a breast meat a little bit and then they're gone. Then they're out of there. Yeah. They've gotten what they need. Yeah, that's that's a tough one, man. I've, I've been there, so I feel your pain. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. That's part of the natural cycle and we it do is. our best with dogs and various other implements to discourage yeah that. But I also, I farm with nature. That's going to be part of it. There's going to be some attrition and sometimes it's a beautiful opportunity to witness nature at its finest, Um, to watch a bald eagle picking through something. Or my favorite is to watch the, uh, the crows pick on the bald eagle and they make the most indignant sounds of protest. I mean, here's this majestic bird and they, they whine, uh, incessantly in a way that is very undignified. Oh my goodness. That is so funny. Do you know about what, uh, Benjamin Franklin had to say about the bald eagle and all that? No. So this was like when, you know, America was like becoming America and he was very much against the bald eagle being chosen as the symbol of the country. He just said, you know, this animal is a carrion scavenger. This is not what we should use. And he highly advocated for the turkey. He said, you know, it should be the turkey. This animal is noble. It lives in family groups. They raise their young in such a beautiful way. They have these societies and these um, beautiful um, mating behaviors. And this bird is so generous and giving with its flesh. The Native Americans called it the giving eagle. And he just heavily advocated for the turkey to be our national bird. And sadly, he didn't uh, succeed. But I think that's kind of cool. 
Oh, I love that. We are uh, rife with wild turkeys here in this part of the country, and I've witnessed how majestic and incredible they are, and to watch them move in their family groups day in and day out. And I've gotten to know some of the groups as we kind of walk through the woods. I I catch little glimpses of them and their their trajectories through our farm. I'm a big turkey fan myself. Yeah, we have wild turkeys here as well. So that's kind of cool. We're on like almost opposite sides of the country, but we both have turkeys. Yeah, same thing. I think I love that when there's there's a lot of copacetic-ness, but I think we're both, you're in the foothills of Northern California. I am. I'm also yeah. in, the, I'm in the foothills of the Adirondacks and the Green Mountains. And so I think that there's something that happens in some of these similar ecosystems that mm-hmm. is comparable. Yeah, there might be. I mean, we're lucky. It's probably one of the saddest things to me about just kind of the way development works is that unfortunately the really good land, the bottom land and the river valleys all get developed into, I mean, not all, but many of them get developed into just cities and housing tracts and stuff. So then the nice, you know, the hill country, which is kind of liminal, um, I don't know if they've, yeah, they've become like kind of your last outposts for wildlife. I mean, it's just, you know, here in California, it's like, you know, places like, say, San Jose or like the Sacramento area. I mean, just the land is so gorgeous. I mean, you just, just the fertility and the, the quality of the soil. But I mean, just, it's just like the development is just nonstop and it can kind of break your heart. So that's probably why I just avoid just avoid the urbanized areas of California, like the plague. Oh my goodness. Like the absolute plague, but man, it's such gorgeous land out here. It really is. It is like a, it's like a paradise on earth. It's stunning. And I think there's, there's a gift here in living in the foothills because it can be more difficult. Uh, It's more soil is not as good, more difficult spaces for cultivation, which I think is a double-edged sword. It's kind of nice because it hasn't, it hasn't been used in a more extractive way as much as some of those bottom lands have, but it calls to you to become creative as a steward of that space. And I'm, I'm appreciative of that, that aspect of it. Yeah. Well, and it also, you know, there's opportunities to live here, whereas trying to live that urbanized lifestyle where you're paying like $3,000 a month rent to live in a closet. It's like, it doesn't sound that attractive, but I actually have kind of an interesting story about what you just said. So I have a mentor who's a 78 year old cattle rancher. His name is Jim Gates. And I became friends with him through my liver business. He was the first rancher that I bought liver from. And I would always kind of, you know, I would show up at his meat locker to like buy my liver and I would ask him questions. And one day he was like, well, you know, one of these days, just hop on the green machine, which is what he calls his ATV, just hop on the green machine and I'll show you. And I was like, oh, okay, well, what, when? And he's like, well, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, sunrise on Wednesday. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there. <laughs> so anyways, I, um, you know, I've spent tons of time with him over the past, I guess, maybe seven years. And he showed me something that he calls the grain field. 
So we're here in the Sierra foothills. So this is not in any way grain growing area where, you know, it's, it's rocky, there's thin topsoil, just a very precipitous landscape with a lot of um, just, you know, it's just hill country. So he took me to this place called the grain field. So this is way back on a several hundred acre ranch. There's no road here. So we went out on a trail and he showed me this area. It's probably about an acre in size, a flat. And you can actually still see the harrow marks that were made in the 1880s when someone tried to sow wheat there. Oh, wow. Yes. And he kind of brought me out there as kind of a lesson to, I mean, among many, but he basically wanted to show me that the land doesn't, it doesn't heal itself without our help. You know, that was the lesson. He's like this, you know, some dummy decided to sow a patch of wheat here on land that was totally unsuitable for it over 150 years ago and did a deep dragging plow plowing method and sowed grain and just sucked the nutrients out of the earth and then just walked away and nothing has been done to heal it and you can you can still see it now it's you know the the grass that grows there is is super fine there's a lot of patches of dry just dry bare soil and um he was actually planning to bring compost out there because he had purchased like multiple truckloads of leftover compost from like some pot farm or something. <laughs> and he was, he was like, you know, sweetheart, earth doesn't fix itself unless humans undo the damage that we've done. And he um, is just very, I've really come, you know, there's this kind of thought in like more mainstream ecology or something that kind of leave no trace mm -hmm. yes. or whatever that, you know, all we need to do with nature is just leave it alone and nature will heal itself. And, you know, there's some truth in that, but also if humans have done damage, we need to restore that damage, which is why regenerative agriculture is so awesome because you know you're doing that but it was really interesting just to see the damage that had been done and yeah you know 150 years have gone by and it's still like that yeah i mean it's unbelievable how much these can leave scars on the landscape and the time scale that it takes to heal that with no inputs with no management yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, because I know you raise goats and I, I don't know exactly how you raise them. I would love to hear about that. But I think that there's this intersection here between the wild progenitor of the human, which I love how much you talk about ancestral life ways. I think that this is really important to get back to. I talk a lot on this podcast about, or when I'm talking about our farm, looking at what the wild progenitor of these animals ate or whatever whatever that original species that a cow or a chicken was domesticated from, what they were eating. And I think that in a similar way as humans, in some ways, we've become a little bit domesticated. We are no longer wild. And there's an intersection. There's some really great things like the ability for us to hop on this call together and to have this modern technology. And then there's this space of agriculture that I think we can bring in as something that is at times vilified and at times can be this healing force, all while holding the space of wanting to get back to some of these life ways. 
Yeah. Oh, I absolutely love this topic because this is like my obsession, like my literal obsession. So I think it's really important for those of us that want to recapture ancestral life ways. We have to like work backwards step by step. So I want to give, you know, so say we're looking at 25,000 to 40,000 years ago, the first domestication of goats or so they say, because I will admit I've become very mistrustful of history. And that's not to say that I disagree with, I mean, it's, it's just a little bit mixed up because as you know, history is written by the winners and it's more amorphous than I think we could possibly imagine. But anyways, so allegedly 25 to 40,000 years ago is the first domestication of goats. And, you know, people are ranging goats on like massive, massive acres, you know, thousands of acres of wild uh, grassy plain, right? And I'm, I'm talking about in Europe. I'm not sure about the domestication of goats in Africa. So, okay, so, so there they are. Now, here I am, I'm a woman that was, you know, grew up in a suburban life way. And now I'm raising goats. I'm raising goats in a fenced, on a fenced property. I have irrigated pasture, which is amazing. Um, and I'm having to actually treat my goats for various, as you know, like mineral issues and all sorts of stuff that they wouldn't have had ranging like that. So for me, what I try to do is I just try to like dip my toes into that. I try to be where I'm at now. So I'm doing my normal modern goat keeping, but I'll also do stuff like I'll just grab, like I have this willow staff that my son carved for me and I'll just take my goats for a walk around the neighborhood. You know, I'll, I'll find their favorite spots and I'll just like stand there for an hour while they eat. It's really entertaining. And so, you know, I just feel like we have to kind of, I don't know, just kind of make the connection but also we can't lose sight of how we're living now. You know, another example might be um, like, I really wanted to make pemmican, which is the very traditional food that almost all indigenous cultures have a version of, which is basically dried meat, animal fat, and berries, dried berries. So it makes a perfect food. Well, to learn how to make pemmican basically took me 10 years because I had to learn how to render fat, which was something that I had to relearn every single year for about five years until I got good at it. I had to learn how to dry fruit properly, which actually that's that's pretty easy. And then I had to learn how to dry meat properly, which was maybe somewhere in between the two. So it took me 10 years to learn how to, how to do that. And I just feel like we have to kind of just make like almost micro steps in the direction of ancestral life ways and just have this trust that we, we have these instincts inside of us. We can, we can do these things, but it has to be something that we want to do. And it's always going to feel kind of out of step with modern society because, you know, there's no money in any of this. Like I've had my family and my, you know, people close to me, like really encourage me to give up keeping goats. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times, like how much money do you make per hour on your goat keeping? Like, why not just go buy that at the store? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I literally can't buy it at the store. There's no buying this at the store. So I don't know. You kind of also have to be a bit of a freak 
just to want to like spend your time doing that. Like, you know, like time that I'm out with my goats, I'm not on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So you have to just Mm -hmm. No, it's, and I think it's an intangible benefit. I don't know, as you were talking, I was thinking about sometimes in the healing journey, you will retrace the steps of your illness. I don't know if this appears in Chinese medicine, but you will begin to just sort of do this rewind of how your illness unfolded. And I wonder, as you said that, that we're sort of retracing these steps of ancestral life ways and, and beginning to piece it together, right? Because we're so disconnected from that space that we have to go back and we have to learn these, these pieces to get back to the whole. And there is this sort of act of retracing our steps and retracing a learning process in order to find that. And, and I, I think that when we get back into these lifestyles, whether it's raising goats and standing there with your staff while your goats munch on some roadside nutrition, that you're coming home to something and there's an intangible benefit there. I was speaking with uh, Nicolette Nyman on a, just last week, and she talks about the intangible benefits of raising livestock. And I think that this is one of them is that space where all of a sudden you stepped into a role of shepherd instead of watching Netflix or whatever calls to us in modern life, scrolling through your phone, whatever that is. And I think that's, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny to me because it's like, to me, it's, it's almost, it's like I have a compulsion to do these things. Like I can't, I can't just like walk by without like looking to see what all the herbs are growing by the roadside or like, you know, having a, like, I just, I'm so obsessed with it. And it's, I don't know. It's just interesting to me how some people get like this and other people just truly could care less, like truly could. But I, it is kind of interesting since the pandemic announcement, you know, farming and agriculture and wild crafting. I mean, it's become a lot less niche. It's definitely gone mainstream. I mean, like none of us could buy chickens a couple of years ago because of us. And I'm, I don't know, I'm excited about it. Like it's just getting, you know, like now if I, if I tell people what I do, people are like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'm kind of curious about that. Whereas a few years ago, it was almost like, what, like Spooky. you milk goats? Like, why would you do that? Like there's milk at the store, like kind of dumb, dumb, are you? So I think it's, there's that piece too, that, I mean, you said this earlier, like we're getting more interested in having our children at home and in raising our children in a more ancestral life way and homeschooling or unschooling or co-sleeping or breastfeeding longer. And we want to grow some of our own food that there's all these, I mean, they're all just kind of percolating and bubbling up out of the surface. And I think in a lot of the ways, the pandemic pushed it in a beautiful direction in that regard. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's been traumatizing and very ugly as well. But now, you know, here we are, it's like two and a half years since, or maybe almost three years. And I'm looking at where society is now compared to where it was then. And I'm liking it. I'm actually liking it. I mean, there's some stuff that's really heavy, like, you know, things like commodity prices rising. And that's actually probably the scariest part 
the gas prices rising also does make me really sad for people on low or fixed incomes. But, you know, just the, I mean, I think California state lost something like 15% of students from the public school system. They never came back. And that's really exciting to me. Very exciting. And it's just like, things aren't going to get better until they get, I don't want to say worse, but until they get more real, like things are not going to get more real until they get more real. And that's not going to be, that's not easy. I mean, we know that easy. I mean, I think things can feel easeful, but I don't know about the word easy. I'm just like really suspicious of it at this point. So yeah, I'm for better or for worse. I think we as humans learn and struggle to some degree that there, there is a going through the sticky, muddy messiness of life that acts as a teacher. And, and maybe there's another paradigm of, of learning from love. But I, I think that, that we haven't made it to that point. And <laughs> yet in, in our, in our, psychic evolution, you know, of our, the evolution of our consciousness. And so I think sometimes going through these brambly, sticky, messy bits can really lead us into better spaces and back to better spaces too. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, humans are, we're such a, I mean, just the way we live now compared to the way our species evolved to live, it's just created this very strange, almost like, like, I almost want to say brain damage or lack of accountability. I don't know. It's just, we're, we're so out of step from, I mean, I think that almost the biggest thing to me, that's, that's the worst quote unquote thing about modern society is how we live without our traditional family and social groups. And, you know, interestingly, people are going back to that just out of pure economic necessity. So, um, yeah, man, it's, it's scary, but it's really exciting. And I mean, there's just so many possibilities right now for young people to get jobs, make money, do cool things. And, you know, we have the internet where, you know, any weirdo like me, can just start a business and market it for free. And <laughs> within a few years, be making, you know, in the six figures with a business like this. And it's not, like, it's possible. I wouldn't have been able to do this without the kind of marketing that I was able to do for free, basically just by being a total weirdo on the internet, like, honestly. And, you know, I'm not going to say that everyone could do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, there's just so many possibilities right now because the rules are changing. And I'm excited about that for the new generation. I mean, I think they're just really cool people. I agree. I agree. And I love, I love what you said, because I think that you're connecting a lot of people to these life ways in the way that you share about raising goats, about parenting, the way that you peel back the curtain on your life and the way that you share these liver pills, which again, I mean, at the beginning, we kind of talked about, there's these funny entry points into everything. Yeah. And meat was that entry point for me that all of a sudden meat opened up the doors of what could be possible in the ways that I could live my life. And I think that your liver pills are serving that for other people, whether it's in giving them the energy to seek out those opportunities, or it's just this, this peak of something of coming home to the earthly soul to bring that peace back, coming home to the earthly soul and following that. Yeah, it's been, it's really been a privilege to be the medium for that. 
And that's especially one of the reasons why I've chosen to really serve mothers and women, because when they're receiving that, they're sharing it with their whole family. And so women are really the kind of the root. And then, you know, like, you know, I mean, do you ever go on some sort of health kick and not also force it upon your husband? No, never. He's (laughs) so grateful too. He says, I'm a little health witch. He doesn't even know what I do. He doesn't even know (laughs) what happens. And he just goes along for the ride and he's, he's better for it. And here, take this and eat this and preparing these things. Yes. The woman is the hearth, the home. And her wisdom spreads throughout that space. And I think that I want to dig into this too, because I think that one of the things I love about the liver pills is on the side, you have to put this FDA warning that if you are pregnant or nursing and you put right next to it, I love this. These nutrients are especially important for pregnant and nursing mothers, women planning to conceive athletes and those under stress are recovering from illness. And I think that this is so beautiful because I think that we aren't nourishing the mother. And this is about that. And in those ancestral communities, the liver was given first to women of childbearing age, mothers, children, and the elderly. Yes. And we really need to, um, we just, we're get, we are getting back to that. It's not that we need to, it's that we actually are. So Thank you. Um, yes. it's just, oh, oh, sorry. I wasn't meaning to correct you. I no, no, no. I like that you, no, I like that you corrected me. I was thanking you. I was thanking you because you were correct in that correction. And I, I sometimes, I like being caught in those, the way that I'm viewing the world and kind of having, no, let's switch that around. We are doing this. Yeah. Well, you know, Kate, you just really have such a breadth of mind. And honestly, I don't know how you got so smart. Like this is like what I've been, okay. Like, I'm just going to like tease you for a minute here, but like when I, like how many books have you read literally like thousands? I mean, it's just, you know, when I was listening to one of your podcast interviews and you're just throwing out like stats on like the Colo, Colorado river, like drainage <laughs> or something. I was yeah. like, Oh my goodness. But, um, you know, what can you say? Like, if you're smart, you're drawn to like, think about stuff and try and understand things. And, um, you know, no wonder you were attracted to meat because it actually really does make us smart too. Yes. I mean, all those minerals and the, the fat in it, which is the same cholesterol that our body myelinates our nerves with that it makes us smart. So here we are. Yeah. And I was, I was without it for a long time. And this is something I want to bring back to people. And, and especially in those, especially for women and children where, I mean, women are depleted and mothers are depleted and, and are, are, Raising and growing children is an act of giving so much of yourself and both emotionally, but also your physical body to that child through, through the placenta, through breast milk. And so this is an act of replenishing. It is. It is. It's, um, you know, something I think a lot about for women and females. And, you know, if you're raising livestock, you'll notice this, that if you have, you know, say a young heifer or a young doling, their health is so easy to manage until they start going through the pregnancy and breastfeeding time. You know, and I've had goats who were just like, they were so healthy. And then the minute they had their first kid, 
they almost like within a couple months, they got worms or they broke down in some way. And, you know, that's to improve my animal husbandry, which I have thanks to some of the unfortunate lessons that I've had to learn. But that's like human women are like that too. And we do have a saying in Chinese medicine that women are 10 times harder to treat than men. And it's because of the quite heavy burden of our reproductive system. It takes a lot just to run our womb every single month. And when we're gestating or breastfeeding, there's just a huge transfer of minerals to the child. And our modern diet in, in no way provides that. It's, it does not. You know, that's why in traditional Chinese medicine, they have all these things they do where like after a woman gives birth, she's supposed to eat up to a dozen eggs a day for six weeks. I know. I know. I actually had professors, I had professors in school that would talk about it because, you know, traditionally the, the woman that gives birth, her husband's mother will take care of her during the six week lying in period. And she is supposed to, now it doesn't always work out like this. She's supposed to do nothing but rest and breastfeed for six weeks and eat. Okay. And grandma is supposed to be in there cooking for her. You know, they really are into chicken foot soup and chicken eggs. So up to a dozen a day. And that actually is supposed to guarantee good eyesight for the child, which makes perfect sense if you're looking at the retinol from the chicken egg yolk. And we really, we need to be doing this kind of thing again, because, you know, since we have things like eyeglasses available, people are almost like, well, who cares if a kid has good eyesight or not, but it's kind of a big deal. It's a very big deal. And you can see it. I mean, if you milk, especially with cows, goats are a little bit different in how those, those manifest, but in cows, you can see that rich yellow retinol coming out of colostrum and some of that earlier milk after birth that that's there and present for the animal's health and benefit. And I think we're often coming to, to motherhood from an already depleted state that we don't we don't have that to begin with. We're not in the condition that, you know, maybe some of our goats and our, our cows are that we've so carefully cared for. And I think fascinatingly enough, there's a lot of information about minerals within raising livestock that is absent in human. Well, I think this is why, um, like, I know you interviewed Hamid Jabbar, the mineral shaman who I'm like obsessed with this guy. Like, I think he's like the coolest, hottest guy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's amazing. He's so yes. smart. He's so kind. Um, so everyone needs to go back and listen to that episode. But, um, oh gosh, what was I going to say? I started thinking about Hamid Jabbar. Coming to it already depleted. Okay. So this is kind of a cool thing is that, you know, I chat with my customers a lot and something that I've actually been hearing from women ever since I started this business is like, well, you know, I'm in my mid twenties, but I'm thinking about getting pregnant sometime over the next few years. So I thought I should start taking these liver pills now. I'm like, you girls are awesome. You are so awesome because yes, if you are a young woman who's thinking about potentially having a child at any point in your future, like start nourishing yourself now. Don't wait and then start like popping prenatals when you're like three months pregnant. Like, I mean, I don't agree with prenatals actually, but 
you know, I mean, you can start nourishing yourself at any point, but yeah, start nourishing yourself before you get pregnant because the minute you start forming that little blastocyst inside your womb, man, your body is draining minerals and it's coming right out of your bones. If you're not already replete with liver or excuse me, replete with nutrients in your liver, because that's where it should be coming from is actually your liver feeds your placenta. That's how you should. If you're not replete in your liver, your um, liver at night is actually going to take stuff out of your bones and put it in your blood. That's kind of how it works. Yeah, so that's bones why they're ultimate storage. They're like exactly. long-term storage versus the liver, exactly. which is more short-term. I actually thought about this as we were talking about liver. The liver organ feels very much to me like this space that is looking at what would best serve our body. Like it is the decision maker of yes. this is what needs to stay. This is what needs to go. This is what needs to go here or there. And it really is the, the arbiter of what serves us. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I, I wasn't aware of that connection between the placenta, but it makes so much sense that it would go directly from liver to placenta. And that conversation that's happening on what baby needs is directly in the, the ear, as it were, of the liver. Yes. And, you know, that's really interesting that you said that because in Chinese medicine, the liver um, and the gallbladder are highly associated with um, good decision-making. So that's really interesting that you tapped into that just with your, you know, just, just through your life experiences. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, you're spot on. You're spot on. I mean, and that, you know, that goes into a bigger level of like making good choices for ourselves, which for a lot of women, one of the biggest areas where we are growing is in learning how to say no to all these activities, requests, demands that are actually really draining and don't even sound good. But maybe we're saying yes, just because we want to like be nice or be a good person. But like, no, just say no. Nobody even cares. Honestly, like you think, oh no, I'm not going to go like drive on the field trip. Like I feel so bad. Nobody cares. Stay home and have a nap. Like literally just say no, walk away, just try it. And I'm like speaking directly to the women listening right now. Say no more so that your body can restore, so that you can be healthy, so that you can go through menopause healthy, and so that you can have good bone quality as an elder. Um, you know, and this is why we have this saying in Western uh, kind of lore, a tooth for every child, right? I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if you've heard oh, that before, but a no. tooth for every child. And, um, you know, a lot of women get cavities when they're pregnant or lose a tooth or something. And, you know, previous to modern dentistry, it was like even worse, right? Because back in those days, if you get a cavity, you know, you're getting that tooth pulled in a few months or a couple of years. And that was just purely mineral depletion. So your body didn't have the nutrients in your liver. So it pulled it from your tooth. And, you know, I mean, on the other, and that's another thing that we see with cows and goats, right? Is you check their teeth every season. And if there's issues with their teeth, you know, that could be relatively normal in an aged animal, but with a young animal, like, you know, you've got to improve your management. I love that decision-making as a recovering people pleaser. I think too, that we make our best decisions from a nourished place when we have the most resources in a both literal and figurative way. And I also want to pick out, I was reading recently, I was reading um, Maureen Murdoch's The Heroine's Journey. Have you read this book? Mm. It's stunning. Um, and she talks about it and I forget, and I'll include it in the intro, 
where where this idea comes from, but she was talking about when when we cease bleeding when we're pregnant, it's in order to nourish the baby. But as we make this transition, you know, from into into menopause, in from the end, we hold our blood in to make wisdom. Yes. Well, and she's, that's a hundred percent Chinese medicine physiology right there. So I don't know if she's just like super intuitive, but we like, okay. So in Chinese medicine, we have a meridian that runs up and down the front of our body. So an energy pathway, and you know, you don't need to be a genius to recognize there's an energy pathway up and down the front of our body. I mean, even in pregnancy, women will get that dark line between their pubic symphysis Mm -hmm. and their belly button sometimes called the linea alba. That's actually showing this extra nutrition flowing into your womb. So what during our reproductive years, we have this really intense energy flow between our our gut and our um, womb, which is basically filling our uterus with blood every month and then theoretically either draining it or, you know, recirculating it in the form of creating a child. So when we cease our menstrual time in Chinese medicine physiology, they believe that that blood now runs up to the heart to make us wise. So yeah, we're actually gonna, we're gonna get like even smarter. I love this. And I loved, I saw you talk about on Instagram fairly recently, preparing for that transition and acknowledging it. And I've thought about that too. My mother entered uh, menopause very early and I'm very cognizant of, of that and how that might, might be my path mm-hmm. and wanting to make sure that there is that space of transition, that p- space of honoring my cycle and, and transitioning those hormones too. Mm-hmm. So that it's a smooth transition rather than a rocky crazy, miserable transition. Yes. And finding nourishment for that transition too. Yeah. You know, um, is your mother a redhead as well? My mother is, my mother is blonde. Okay. She's blonde. Okay. Something I actually wanted to message Hamid about, but I forgot to, is I was wondering if redheads need more copper. You know, because I was just kind of curious because, you know, we have this whole like cultural mythology about redheads, which, you know, in my anecdotal life experiences, I do find to be true, you know, just very fired up (laughs) people, right? You know, just a lot of humor, a lot of vibrancy, and maybe a lot of passion. And then also, you know, because that can translate into certain special problems and challenges as well. And I'm wondering if it's possible that people with red hair also have a higher need for um, certain minerals, which could make them theoretically more susceptible to different challenges because you're you know, kind of operating at a bit of a like higher vibrational level. I love um, that line of inquiry. It's just total speculation, but yeah. it's, it's, you know, there's a lot we can know about ourselves just based on how we look. And this is a whole field within Chinese medicine that is just really, really it's very helpful is like basically face and body reading. So you can actually know what someone's personality is like just by looking at them. And um, I will say it's very useful. It's extremely useful. Not to say that you could like um, know everything about a person, but you can know a lot and it really helps you, you know, just kind of move through the world with 
more ease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, we're always initially reading people's, we're reading their emotions, we're reading their body language and how that's translating to whatever mental state that they're in at a time. And to be able to pick up on maybe some nuance of personality and to better understand that interaction, which has to be innate to some degree, right? Yeah. That has to be pulling at something that is present within the human when it is most open to receiving what's around them, right? That, that Chinese medicine. And so that's got to be a part of what we maybe were once able to do. Yes, I, I think so. And I, you know, I mean, some people are just, they're naturally just really, really good at reading people and they have no specific language for it. And, you know, I think it's something we can all do. And it's something that I think is extra important for women because one of my like obsessions is helping keep women and girls safe from um, sexual assault or sexual abuse. And I think one of the biggest things that we need to learn in childhood is how to read people. Now, you know, unfortunately, a lot of sexual abuse happens within families. So this unfortunately wouldn't really be helpful. But all those, um, like, I don't know if this was like this for you, but when I was in college, my friends were just getting like raped, like left, right and center. It was just like, it just happened so, Yeah, it, it just happens so much. And it, you know, I just think if, if there had been more of a vibe check, they would not have wound up in certain situations with someone that just didn't feel quite right, but, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be nice and I'll just kind of go back to their place anyways. And then next thing you know, the next morning they're like, wow, something happened that like made me feel really bad. And like, maybe I'm going to have to heal from this for a few months. And I just think girls and young teen women really need to learn, like basically just if someone has a good vibe or a bad vibe and you don't even need to know anything else other than that. Just if now, of course it won't always work a hundred percent, but just feel comfortable saying no, feel comfortable not going back to someone's house. Just your feelings are so much more important than being polite or anyone else's feelings. How do, yeah, you think, how do you think we cultivate hobby. that in children? Like, how do you think I we think begin so. to, how do we, huh, how do we teach children how to feel that and feel their own sense of intuitive vibe check, as you put it? You know, I think it's really easy for kids. I think they, they really have, like, say, you know, say you're maybe meeting a friend's little girl for the first time. You know what she's going to do? She's going to hide behind her mom. She's going to refuse to say hi. She won't smile at you. She's going to peek out like, who is this mean, scary lady? And like, as parents, we have to actually honor that because children innately are afraid of strangers, which is smart. And they're very cautious and self-protective, especially girls. And there's all this research that shows, you know, women being more of like the prey side of the human organism and men being more of the predator side of the human organism. Girls have this tendency to like stay close to their mothers. They'll only venture so far away from the house. They're always checking, whereas little boys will almost kind of like disperse into the woods, you know, and that's not like, there's variance there, but I think one of the first ways we start is in allowing children to be 
just to express their own natural emotions when they meet a stranger for the first time. And you can, you know, say your child is, is cowering behind you and they're, they're scared of meeting this new person. You embrace them, you, you stay there with them and you say, Hey, sweetheart, you know, this is Wendy. She's one of mommy's really good friends. And we're going to be playing at her house today. Or hopefully you actually prepared them ahead of time. You know, there's just so much where we just kind of see our children as like a little appendage of ours. And we just sort of drag them around, but we need to talk to them more. We need to go slower. And, um, you know, if a child is having a hard time meeting someone new, please do not say, oh, she's just being shy today. Like that drives me nuts. No, your child's not being shy. They're having an appropriate innate human fear response to meeting someone that they don't know yet. And if you like tamp that down in childhood, so is now this going to be like a 16 year old girl who's a people pleaser and goes home with this like weirdo 25 year old guy that they met at the gas station? Like, no, I think this is so critical because I think that oftentimes exactly what you said, these innate responses in children are something that we've been socially conditioned to just make them tiny adults or to make them for pleasing adults to smile and say hello. And what you just said about that shy little girl, I always, as somebody who doesn't have kids, like take a step back and I'm like, no, she's let her be in the space that she's in. She doesn't need to greet me. She doesn't need to say hello to me. I don't, I don't require, I don't require her presence to be anything other than exactly where that child is. And I think that we've, we've lost some of that idea of just letting these emotions bubble up in children as, as they are wont to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I see, I see it with piglets, right? I, this is a funny thing to relate it back to, but piglets initially are very people shy. They do not like people. And then all of a sudden they hit an age, this inflection point where they become more interactive with people. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, we push our children to, we just destroy their natural instincts so much with, I mean, I think we have to try and remember, you know, in an ancestral setting, which is what our biology is still wired for, children didn't meet strangers on a regular basis. Like it was really rare. Of course. I didn't even think about that. Yes. They lived in a, they lived in a community. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when strangers came, there would be all sorts of, you know, appropriate, you know, ritual and ceremony around that. And you can better believe if some like, you know, traders from the sea came to visit the village, you wouldn't be forcing all the little girls to say hi. So, you know, that's not to like, I am a big fan of children being polite, but let's do this in an age appropriate way. And especially for little girls, let's not rewire their innate self-protectiveness because as women with um, vaginas and wounds, we are uniquely vulnerable in ways that men aren't. That's not to say that men can't have terrible experiences and that little boys cannot have terrible experiences, but I mean, it's just a whole other ball game with women. Thank you for sharing that. I hadn't considered that piece about not meeting strangers is really important. And I think, again, to get back to that idea of what is the wild progenitor of the human, what are those life ways? How is that manifesting? Because I think that we are still, we are still those ancient humans. We're just in this modern setting and there is no reconciling that. There is only coming home to and acknowledging how that is manifesting in modern culture and how we can make space for it to exist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think we can, I mean, I don't want to like 
pathologize modern society as much as I probably have over the years. Cause I, I really have struggled to feel normal, to fit in, to, you know, do all these things like apply for a passport and stand in line. Like what? <laughs> But, you know, modern society does come with, you know, a lot of privileges and opportunities, and I'm grateful for them. So I don't know. I have really mixed feelings about it. I do too. I do too. I'm grateful for a lot of aspects of modern society, and I also have mixed feelings. I don't know. How long do I have you here? I don't want to keep you too long. And so. Um, you know, I, let's see, I don't know what time it is because my phone is not telling that. What time do you have over it there? It is for you. I have to do some, you're three hours behind. It is 1040. No, it's 940. 9.40. Okay. Yeah. My employee is going to be arriving at 10. So I have until then, okay. but it's up to you. You know, if you no, feel, I just wanted to, no, no, I have some other things I want to pick apart if that's okay with you. Yeah, I just, great. um, yeah, I'd love I didn't want to, wanna... I didn't want to keep you extra long. No, I, I love being here. And I'm, you know, honestly, Kate, I'm very grateful to you. And I really, I really am excited to see how successful your podcast is becoming so quickly. And it's like, this is the kind of podcast that people are going to listen to it. And it's going to be life-changing. And I'm just like excited about that because like we need to get a clue here <laughs> we actually need to get a clue and your podcast in a very compassionate very gentle very supportive way it's really going to help people do that thank so thank you so much that was very yeah. kind well i feel the same way about your work and it's funny i was thinking about before i came into this interview i often have this kind of masculine paradigm from which I podcast and where I feel like I need to conquer all of this knowledge and be this container. And there was something about the energy of your work as I've dug into it over the last week in preparation for this podcast that had this invitation to be with my feminine and where I usually spend in the hours before a podcast, I feel like I need to cram, like I need to shove all of these things in my brain and, and be able to speak. I actually went for a walk in the woods instead. And your work has just been such a gift. And there was just the soft invitation to just lean into that space. And I'm, I, I think that you create that everywhere you go. Oh, Kate, thank you so much. Yeah, all us women, we just need to chill the fuck out, do less, just sit on the couch, stare at the wall, you know? I mean, like, we're just, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about where we're going because, you know, feminism has been very hard on us, very hard on us, and we're diverging from that in a really graceful direction right now. And I think it's gonna, there's just so much healing and kind of, hitting like a higher vibration of of femininity and masculinity and this is going to be really good for our species yeah i want to i actually want to dive into that i love it when you talk online about marriage and this is something that i really adore talking about on the podcast i think it's important i don't hear enough stories of marriage kind of in spaces and i love the mm, just the deliciousness and the 
careful. I, you've clearly cultivated a relationship with your husband, which I deeply, I deeply appreciate seeing that work goes into it and that care goes into it. Because I think that when I reflect on my relationship with my husband, it is the thing that I have put the most work and care in. And I think within that, I'm very proud of what we have consciously and purposely built. Yeah. And I see that. Yeah. You know, I really, I'm excited for people to share the real stories of their marriages. And I think we can do that in a way that's graceful and also preserves our personal privacy to an appropriate amount. But yeah, wow. My husband is just such a fucking king, man. Just like what a guy. And that said, you know, being married to a man like that is not easy because they're never home. (laughs) They're always busy and they're not, well, basically those are the reasons, right? They're never home and they're always busy. But obviously like, that's why I wanted to be with him in the first place was because I was attracted to his, you know, masculine vigor and like king-like energy. So I have to remember that and also remember that I can ask for him to slow down and spend time with me. Like I can ask for that. And, you know, we can't, it's so hard, but we cannot expect our partners to be a mind reader for us. And we want to, you know, maybe I think to myself, well, you know, we've been together for over 20 years. Like, shouldn't he know by now? Nope. Nope. And he's not thinking about that. That's not what, whereas I look at my husband and I think, what is he thinking about? What does he need right now? He doesn't look at me and think that, which there's nothing, which doesn't say anything. It just says something about who he is and the space that he's in. He cares very much for me and he works to consider that thought, but him and I are not the same. And, and I really love this because not asking my husband to be a mind reader, I think has been one of the biggest gifts in our relationship. When I just say, this is what I need. This is what I am experiencing. This is what you could do for me. That would make me feel the way that you want me to feel. Yeah. And it's, it's a paradigm shift, you know, cause I grew up with basically, you know, to me, my idea of an ideal relationship was hundred percent from Disney. So it was like, find the person that you like the most and attach yourself to them and then happily ever after. And I was like, okay, you know, diligently did that and, um, married my husband. And then it's like, oh, holy shit. Like what's next? You you know, because once, you know, there's a honeymoon period to a relationship, which lasts for about one to two years on average, it can last longer, but there, this is another thing where there's a lot of research on this as well. And I mean, you know, I mean, we've all been there and it's so awesome. It's very hormonally based and you just, your, your heart rate is on fire. You know, you think about the person and you know, you're gushing your panties, pardon, you know, like it's, you know, you like, it's just, it's so exciting. Of course, it's also physiologically unsustainable because you would probably wind up with severe adrenal fatigue if you like (laughs) live like that for an extended time period. But you know, once that's over, you have to, you can have all of those feelings, but you have to do this groundwork to cultivate like a deep emotional connection and a sense of safety and actually spending time together and not falling into like roommate syndrome, as I call it. And that's really hard. 
and really it used hard. to like really annoy me how I would hear adults be like, well, a good relationship is hard work. And I was like, well, that's dumb. No, it's not. I'm just in love with him and everything's easy, but that's just the honeymoon phase speaking, you know? So once that's over, you know, you can perform serial monogamy and that, you know, that is a valid option, especially if you don't have children. I'm kind of like, you know, I see some people doing that. I'm like, that kind of looks fun. Although that's also not good for farming either. Um, but if you want to stay with your partner, I mean, as you said, you have to ask to have your needs met. You have to, you have to like still date them. You have to schedule that. Yes. Even as farmers too. I mean, when you are busy and when you are both working, you have to schedule time for dating, for being romantic. This has been, this is a really big part of my husband and I's relationship. And we have different levels of dates too. I mean, we need like a, a big going out and putting on clothes that are <laughs> not farm clothes and experiencing what that's like and making yeah. plans throughout the week that are these touch points for touching in together. Yes, because it doesn't just happen automatically. And I think, you know, especially as a woman, I need conversation and talking that's not necessarily strategically related or like, oh, you have this appointment and I have that appointment. It's like, you know, just sitting there kind of like riffing about my feelings or, you know, and that's, I need to actually ask for that and, and do that or else the sexuality for me will start to dry up because even though this is this is my husband who I've been intimate with for years. My heart needs to, like, I need to keep feeling this level of emotional safety and intimacy with him. And that doesn't, it's an ongoing project. We talk about that. I need conversation as foreplay, right? That, that, yeah. that is a part of what opens me sexually is to have this touch point of conversation that is not the case for my husband, but that he gladly acquiesces because that is a part of, of my sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think for men, they approach it almost the reverse way. The sexuality opens their heart. And I think, you know, we've probably all experienced, you know, like, you know, you make love and it's like really wonderful. And then afterwards you're like laying there together and then your husband just opens up and starts talking and like sharing about a childhood memory or something. And you're like, wow, this is really sweet. Whereas for us, we kind of need it to go the opposite direction, which I think is why men and women, it's just, I mean, we're so amazing in relationship together. Yeah. I mean, how incredible to have, have these these keys that are so different from one another that allow us to create this space of call it sacred union, whatever it is that we open one another up and become more together. Yes. It's, it is a real privilege and it's just something that I do not take lightly because I've just, you know, seen the, I've, I experienced the absolute catastrophe that divorce can be for children. And this is just not my path. I mean, I will do whatever it takes, including scheduling a date with my husband. <laughs> you yeah. know, and you know, we can't, we can't look at other people's relationships and think, oh, they look like they're doing so great. I mean, we have to actually, I think, talk to other women and hear about what works for them, the challenges that we're having and, and like learn from each other and support each other. Cause this is not, you know, we never learned how to have a healthy relationship. I mean, I sure didn't. 
So this is kind of a re-education process we're going through. Thank you. Thank you for sharing some about that, because I agree that we didn't learn and that it still seems like something that happens behind closed doors in many ways, that this isn't something that's being discussed as much in my female friend groups as I want it to be, that we're talking about what it means to nourish our relationships and to go through what is hard. I mean, the hard growth stages of this too. And so it's a gift to speak about it. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, you know, I've had some really hard times in my marriage, um, especially associated with the postpartum stage where sexuality was basically like off the table for me. And that just caused so much strife in the relationship. And I got support from a female friend during that time. And she just reminded me, she was like, you know, relationships have seasons. And sometimes these seasons might even last for years. Like relationships can have actually bad years. Yes. And it's kind of like, none of us really want to hear that. But, you know, realistically, I would say within the context of my marriage, we have been together for over 20 years um, and we've been married for 15 years. And I'd say there's been about seven years when we were really not having a lot of fun, like a lot of arguments, a lot of um, tension and like I was, I'm willing to go through that, you know, and if I need to, I'll go through it again. I mean, I hope I won't, but like, it's, there's just, there really can be some hard times. And if it's not in the context of abuse, if it's just two people that love each other, but you're going through financial stresses, you're bringing a new child, you're moving, you're dealing with um, potentially elder care or end of life for parents or family members. I mean, these things cause stress and just know that just try and be a better person yourself. Try to work on you, not on hoping the other person will change because that's fruitless. But if, if we grow, you will see that vibrational shift in, in your partner at some point. I really appreciate that. My husband and I have been together for almost 14 years and there have been some really hard years and full years. And there was one two year stretch that was really hard. And, and I think that, I think that beyond those struggles right outside of abusive relationships, you know, there's some, there's some exceptions here that those struggles lead us to deeper connections with our spouses in a way that can be really magical. But I think that we have also lost in our society sometimes that sometimes you got to stay through some of this stuff. You got to work it out together. And it's not, it's not always pretty. It's not always, it's not always fun. No, no. And it's not about, you know, like the grass is really not greener necessarily. I mean, you know, you could explode your family, get a divorce and go with this new shiny partner. And, you know, two years later, once again, you're back where you started from. So, and I've just seen so many people do that. And I have a lot of compassion for it because it can, you know, there's been times when I felt like, I don't know if I can live another day like this. You know, literally, I don't know if I can live another day like this. But one thing my husband and I have always shared is a really ridiculous, inappropriate sense of humor. (laughs) And um, there's actually some really interesting research that shows that, that there's two factors 
that are really big predictors for long-term relationship success. And I think that um, everyone should know this. So the first one is, do you share a similar sense of humor? Yes. Um, because <laughs> Yeah, that's what gets you through the dark times, right? So do yes. you share a similar sense of humor? And two, do you have a similar risk-taking profile? So that's almost more on that like values level. Mm -hmm. But I really think that young women who are, you know, in that process of finding a life partner, like evaluate that, like if, you know, say you really like him, but he's really inappropriate with his jokes and you're more like dry with your jokes, like just, just know <laughs> you're not going to like that body this. humor 10 years in, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know if that rings true for you guys. Oh, it rings so true. We have very similar on both, both our sense of humor, which often people don't get me. And my husband really gets me. He thinks I'm funny, uh, which is fantastic. And I think he's hilarious. And yeah. we also have very similar risk-taking profiles. And yes. So that is, that is really interesting. Um, it I makes know sense, right? It makes, and it makes perfect sense. You need that because if one person is taking really big risks and the other person is rather risk averse, that's constantly yeah. going to cause tension within that relationship. Yes. Or, you know, one wants to go do these crazy things and the other one just isn't on board. That's, that's difficult to overcome. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I love that tidbit. I know we're running out of time. I could talk to you forever. And I just, it was such a pleasure to get to meet in person, you know, in an internet yeah. way. Um, yeah, but I don't want to take Kate. all of your time. Um, I do, I do. Yeah, want... no, if you have a couple more questions, please go for it because I really, it's not good. I just kind of have conversation pieces. And I think that marriage, that marriage one was a really big piece for me because I watch you talk about that. And so I think in some ways that's a good endpoint. We can save more questions for another podcast and maybe we can yeah. do this again sometime. I'd love that. Oh gosh, you know who else are the best inspiration is um Tara and Troy, man. Yeah. The two of oh them. Like I, I literally I think of them and I'm like, Tara and Troy, like we're gonna be just like them someday. Like and I mean they're you know, and she's been real that they you know, they had times when their daughters were young when it was really hard. And they stuck together, they supported each other, and now look at where they are now. Yeah. We talked about marriage on the pot. That was like my burning question for Tara was to discuss marriage because, it, because again, I think this is so important and it's not, I don't think it's happening in our friend circles enough. I, that's something I want to bring is that we can talk about some of these solutions and some of how, how Josh and I have figured things out and how we haven't. Yeah. Where we're still working that, yeah. that it isn't perfect. Right. Because we do have this propensity to look at other people's relationships and say, there we go. That's there. It's really working. And so I think when we reveal, you know, while still keeping our privacy, some spaces where it is and isn't working and what we've done, all of a sudden we can really bring people back to marriage in a different way. I think that we've, we've lost the thread on marriage sometimes and it's, yeah, I agree. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a building block of families and culture and it's, we need to, yeah, realive in marriage in like, just literally how like spicy and like crazy and like ridiculous this can be. And I mean, how absolutely hot and sexy this can also be too. Cause like when you go through, okay, like anyone can have great sex with this new person that you have a, you know, blood chemistry with like that's, but when you, when you get like some of the experiences that I've had with my husband 
over the past few years, like it's mind blowing and it's not necessarily easy to get there. And so when you do, it's, I mean, it just means so much. It just means so much. And it's, you know, we can have this, like anyone can have this. You just have to, you just have to look at you and improve you. I want to unpack something and I'm just, just before we get off, we have to put work into sex too. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important to say out loud, that this is also something that we have to be talking about in our marriages, that we have to be discussing, that we have to be exploring, that we have to build spaces for. Yes. Yes, actually. And here's, this is one of, I think one of the best things I learned about sexuality over the past few years is that you need to talk about sex outside of the bedroom because, you know, say you're, say you're entangled with your spouse and he's doing something, but it's just like 15 degrees off of how you want it. Like, it's not to say you shouldn't communicate in the moment, but the time to actually have a real conversation, like, Hey, like next time you're, you know, I really like it when you go down on me and your head is turned this way and your hands are like this, like that feels really good. That's when we need to have that conversation. Cause in the moment when we're in a sexuality space, that's not really like a, having an old fireside chat space. No. It's not a time to bring in pragmatism, but this is almost something that's like pragmatic and yeah. to stay in that moment. I love that. Yes. Yeah. That is when we have our best conversations about sex is outside. And it's usually, you know, this is funny. The other night we were talking about sex as we trimmed our billy goat's feet. And I know that this isn't, right? This isn't, this isn't <laughs> like the, a... No, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. That's and so it, hot. And I think that it really provided this space too, where, you know, not, not dissimilar from riding in a car and talking about something that might be charged or heated or vulnerable. We're not looking at each other. There's a a natural humor to the situation and it gave us space to, I think, really be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more in tune. And it was here and I was terribly unsexy, right? Like Billy Goat goat Hooves in the fall, super smelly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. And actually my husband and I have, I think some of the times when we have cultivated just the most like loving feelings together has been, we have been engaged in, I guess, about a 10, 15 year long project of dealing with an elderly relative's hoarded possessions. Oh my gosh. I know. So actually some of the, but interestingly, some of the times that we have cultivated the most, like just like warmth and humor has been when we're like hauling around like 10 old washing machines, you know, with like a dolly and straps and like taking it to the dump. And like, it's just, you know, doing this like grunt work together with your partner is so awesome. And, you know, unfortunately, if you're living an urbanized existence, it can be really hard to find those kind of opportunities where you're just kind of sweaty, dirty, tired, but also laughing. I mean, like, how do you get that if you're living in the city? It's a great question because you're right. And I think some of my best bonding memories with my husband are in these dirty, sweaty, exhausted, putting up hay, chasing down cows, uh, fixing fences situations. Yeah, I know. I think Mm. more like urban couples need to start picking up trash together. (laughs) Can't you see all these like like kind of like hot couples, but like, okay, date night, put on your gloves, get your bag, get your grabber. And then there's like these like adorable people just out like picking up 
trash from like the roadside and the inner city. So like any urban people listening to this podcast right now, that's what you need to do. And we want to see you guys laughing together and bonding and cleaning up your town. I love that. I think that's perfect. I, I love that. Okay. I don't want to take up your whole day. Okay. I do want to let people know where they can find you. I'll do a long intro about my experience with your liver pills because this has just been, I think they are so beautiful. I want everyone to find them. You are so awesome, Kate. And let's do some sort of little like um, coupon code or something so we can put it in the show notes or something I would like love that. that. I would love that. Let's do whatever, whatever yeah. feels most aligned for you. Um, awesome. Great. I think that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for doing this. You're so welcome, Kate. Thank you. I just have an um, awesome day. Yeah, you too. And I just, I really do just want to express my gratitude. And I do have to tell you this one little thing, which is so funny. When you sent me my last liver pill package, you included your beautiful lard and calendula cream. And you mentioned it made a great lube. And the night before I had told, I had told my husband, I was like, we need a different like little jar of lube. And so I ask and you shall receive. That's awesome. And you know, I wanted to, okay, now I need to share one more thing about lube. Okay. (laughs) Which is that men love lube. Men are so into in my, okay. This is what I think. Men love lube because it like gives them something to do. It takes the pressure off and they like putting it on their own self. And I'm like, you know, I kind of have had a bit of a, like, I do use it and I've had a few roadblocks to using it, but then I just have to embrace it and be like, Hey, like this just adds to what's happening. So get your lube out, ladies, get it out. I love it. Okay. I think that's perfect. (laughs) Um, Bye Kate. bye. Bye. Thank you, Susie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.